Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 27. So we are coming to the end of Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew. We're in chap- starting chapter 27, which is a long chapter. And then Matthew 28 is really short. And so we just have a, a few more Sundays in the book of Matthew. Isn't that amazing? I have loved this, and I'm looking forward to what we have left. Um, then we're going to do a series on leadership. What does it mean to be a leader in church? Uh, what are the things we look for? What, is it, what are the things that we try to develop in our lives? And so we're going to be doing that next. But for now, let's jump into Matthew chapter 27. And uh, our title this morning is Proof of Innocence. When you look at what happens um, in the, the trial and the conviction of Jesus and his sentencing to death, the one thing that stands out through the whole thing is that Jesus was innocent. It is communicated by what people say, and it is communicated by what people do. And so we're going to see that, that Jesus was innocent. And that is essential, because if Jesus was not innocent, he couldn't die for our sins. And so Jesus was righteous. So structurally, that is the, the theological thing that happens in this section of Scripture. But one of the amazing things is that there are, Scripture is so deep. And we see this truth about Jesus, and we don't want to miss that. But the other thing that we see is we see how did it happen that an innocent person is railroaded, convicted, sentenced to death? How does that happen? And so we're going to look at that. We're going to see the evil of the people who betrayed Jesus. We're going to see Satan. He's working in, in, in all of these groups, leading them, guiding them, influencing them to do something evil. We're going to see the evil of the Pharisees who had set their heart on killing the person that they actually should have been worshiping and, and pointing everybody's attention to. We're going to see the evil of Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples who betrayed him. We'll see the evil of the crowds as they're manipulated to actually cry out for the death of Jesus. And we'll see the the evil of the Romans who were the tool that was actually used to execute Jesus. Now here's the amazing thing that I love about scripture. You can start reading in Genesis and you can go through the whole Old Testament, you can go through the whole New Testament and something stands out very clearly. And that is that Satan always does the same things in the same way. And so as you, as you read what God says and as you see how Satan works and how people fall into sin, and you take a step back and you just go, oh, so many people, when they think about the disciples, oh man, the disciples were idiots. Or they read the Old Testament, the Jews, I can't believe God brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus and, and shortly they're crying to return and stone Moses. I can't believe they do that. And, and a lot of times people look at stories in the Bible as though that's someone else, somewhere else, and that if we were there, we wouldn't have done it. When the reality is, as we read this, and we think about how does Satan manipulate these people to do something so evil, and then we take a step back and we look at our own lives We look at problems that we see in the church, church politics, all all the things that's wrong with religion, all the ways that we fall into sin. You just take a step back and you go, wow, the same thing that Satan did to manipulate the Pharisees, he's doing to me, he does to people in my family, I see him doing this to people in the church. So this this passage is about Jesus, but there are so many things for us to learn as we read this. Scripture is so deep. And so that's what we're going to see. And one of the things that is comforting in all of this is that God is completely sovereign. And while people are responsible for their evil, um, Judas is responsible for betraying Jesus. The Pharisees are responsible for wanting to kill Jesus. The crowds are responsible for chanting, crucify him. And in the midst of that evil, that was brought about by Satan, we also take a step back and say, they are responsible. This was evil. This should not have been done. But this, God didn't wake up and go, oh my goodness, my plan is messed up. 
That is how amazing and powerful God is that this whole, the execution of Jesus was God's plan and it was good and it brought about the salvation of mankind. And how, do we, how can we look at life and say, you're evil, this was bad, this circumstance should never have happened, and yet I have confidence that a good God is in control of the universe, working everything for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's easy for us to think about that in relation to the death of Christ, right? In fact, I think for many of us as believers, we're not appalled by the death of Christ and what happens in Matthew 26, 27. Uh, we're not appalled by that because we think of the death of Christ as an amazingly wonderful thing, which it is. So let's jump in here and see what the Lord would have us learn. And I want you to remember as you face tragedies, difficulties, um, sin in your own life and in your family's life, God is just as sovereign. He is just as good. And everybody involved in sin is just as responsible as the people in this passage. So here are the things we're going to see. I got six points this morning. Ready for that? Usually I have three. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to make them shorter uh, today. So we're going to see the innocence of Jesus. The fact that he was declared innocent, he was declared innocent by the need of the Jewish leaders to keep things a secret. He was declared innocent by Judas on the actual lips of Judas is him saying Jesus is innocent. He was declared innocent by the actions of the chief priests as they respond to Judas giving back the money. He is declared innocent by Pilate a Roman, over and over and over. And we see that he was condemned by a mob that was manipulated by religious leaders. And then we're going to see Jesus' abuse. We're going to see the fact that he was beaten, that a crown of thorns was stuck on his head, and that he did all of that because he loves you and me. And that Jesus died for the very people who killed him. So let's, let's uh, jump into this, and let's start by looking at verse 1 and 2. Declared innocent by the chief priests and the elders' need for secrecy. So the, the thing that we learned last week is that it takes an Ill, illegal trial to convict Jesus, and that the leaders are afraid to do what they do out in the open. they got to keep it a secret. And now we're going to see that they're going to rush Jesus from their trial that they held in the middle of the night. They're going to rush him in front of Pilate. And uh, we're going to see basically Pilate gets woken up at his house super early in the morning. Let's read this. Matthew 27, verse 1. So Jesus has been arrested, and now he's gone through his trial before the Jews. And then it says, when morning came. So first thing in the morning... All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. You know, one of the things that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest him, he said this. It says, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, this is the crowd of people that's come to arrest him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the Pharisees and the leaders, they have to do this at night. They're hiding it. In fact, the Bible tells us that they did this, um, that they did it secretly. We see that in, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, the, in, in like the first five verses, that they're seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth because they were afraid of the crowds. This testifies to the innocence of Jesus. Now, let's just take a step back. That's the theological lesson. Let me just challenge you to think about your life. Are there ever times that you are tempted to do things in secret? Um, there's a lot of people, and this is one of the things we see about the Pharisees, is over and over, they convince themselves that they're righteous, that they're doing the right thing. We see their diligence in obeying Jewish law. We'll see later that they won't even go into Pilate's house because they don't want to defile themselves. 
So, so they have this facade of religiosity while they secretly perform wicked deeds. Now let's think about that in our life. Do we ever feel tempted to be secretive about things? You know, I was thinking about this in my life. Um, you know, Satan's plans and strategies have not changed. Whenever you feel like you need to be secretive about something, probably what you're doing is wrong. You know, integrity, that is having nothing hidden in the tent. Like Achan, he buried the treasure. You don't bury things that you have nothing to be ashamed of. And so integrity is having nothing hidden. You know, there's a lot of application to that, even in parenting. When do kids want to hide things from their parents? Is it when they're doing things that are right? No. Um, one of the things, and by the way, just as a parenting thing, you don't wait till your kids are teenagers to start to teach them to be honest and to be upfront about things that are going on in their life. That's not the place to start teaching. Hey, if you haven't taught them yet, well, it's never too late. But I remember sitting down with my kids when they were three, four, five years old and saying, anytime you feel like not telling me and mom something, that is the specific thing you need to tell us. And so there may be a bunch of things going on in your life, but we don't hide things. And then I would tell my kids, if you are hiding it, then you know that what you're doing is wrong. And it doesn't mean kids aren't going to hide things, but at least let kids understand what that means about their life. I, I think about that, the application of that in life and in marriage. You know, uh, Michelle and I, when we were newly married, we had this agreement that we could veto each other's friendships and that we could veto each other's spending. And I remember one time I bought something and I just thought, oh, I don't want Michelle to know I bought this. <laughs> and I was feeling really bad about it, so I went to her and I said, hey, uh, I went to Home Depot, I was in the tool section, and I bought this thing. <laughs> and uh, she was so upset. I had, it's a good thing that uh, Home Depot has a good return policy because I returned it. <laughs> Um, there were other times in my life, there have been all, actually multiple occasions where I've had a conversation with a, a lady. And I thought to myself, um, I had no bad motives in, in these conversations, but I thought if Michelle heard this conversation, it would make her uncomfortable. And then there's that temptation to say, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. This lady didn't mean anything by it. Uh, I think she didn't mean anything by it. But if Michelle heard this, it would trouble her. And so what did I do? I had a temptation to hide it. I went home and said, hey, Michelle, I had a conversation today, and this is the conversation that took place. Anytime you feel like hiding something, you need to make sure you don't hide it. I think about that like as I function in church. Um, I don't tell the elders every single thing that I do. Uh, it would be logistically impossible. But if I'm ever going to do something, and I think, ooh, this might bother the elders, I send an email and say, this is what I'm doing. Or if I think to myself, all the elders will like this, but there's one elder that I think would be uncomfortable. That is the elder I make sure I go have the conversation with. Anytime we hide things, it's a communication that what we're doing isn't right. By the way, that is church politics. Um, church politics is just dishonesty. It's people manipulating things, people not being truthful about why they're doing what they want to do. And so that's, you know, when you think about, well, what goes wrong in churches? Why is there so much uh, disunity at times? That's always why. The same thing that Satan used to manipulate the Pharisees to execute, execute Jesus is what God uses in the body of Christ and in families and in parenting relationships. And so we look at this terrible crime, and you think, man, how'd that happen? Well, I don't know. Think about your own life. How do we have problems in our families? How do we have problems in marriage? Why do we have problems in the church? It is the same thing. So let's uh, continue on. Jesus was declared innocent by Judas, uh, the very person who betrayed him. Let's read this, verse 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent 
blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. You know, this is uh, powerful. He changed his mind. You know, um, the, the word that's used in that passage is a, is, a, is a word that expresses grief, sadness, sorrow. But it is not the same word that is used in repentance where it says that, um, for example, in Acts chapter 2 when Peter's preaching and it says that people were convicted, they were cut to the quick, they felt guilty, and they repented. It's a different word for repentance. The word that's used here in change of mind is a word for sorrow. He was very sorry about what he did and he gave back the 30 pieces of silver. And he declares Jesus to be innocent. This is something to think about. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. He lived life with him. He saw everything that he did. And he declares him innocent. Have you, have you ever seen people who, um, when they do something, they then feel committed to justify what they did? <laughs> so get a group of people to commit a sin. And then go address that group of people and say, hey, what you did was wrong. How are they going to respond? They're all going to convince each other that what they did was right so that they don't have to feel guilty. See, there's this natural tendency in people to always justify themselves. And the fact that Judas has committed this sin and then declares Jesus innocent and changes his mind means there's nothing he can do to convince himself that what he did was right. But what's sad is that he doesn't repent did Judas know the Lord? Uh, this is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Just because people feel bad about sin, that is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance, you look at David when he's sitting with David and Bathsheba and how he just felt God's hand heavy on him. Night and day, he couldn't sleep. He felt so guilty. He was overwhelmed. And when Nathan finally comes and confronts him, it's this freedom to repent. And his repentance is pointed toward God. And he actually says against God and against him only have I sinned, even though he committed an affair and he murdered somebody. No, he sinned against people too. But the primary place of his grief and his repentance, it was aimed at his relationship with God. That, that was David. Judas, on the other hand, is very sorrowful, but it doesn't lead him to repentance. It does not lead him into a relationship with God. It, it, it leads him to grief. It leads him to trying to solve his own problems. It leads him to going to the chief priests and say, what I've done is wrong. I want to return this money. And on his own, he's trying to fix this. He's not going to God and falling down on his face and saying, hey, what I've done is wrong. Forgive me. He does not go to God. He tries to solve his problem himself. That is worldly sorrow that leads to grief, that leads to death. And we see that in Judas' life, it actually leads to his death. You know, it makes me think of uh, the sermon that Rick preached some time ago, Matthew uh, chapter 25, verse 24, where you have that unfaithful servant, uh, the one with one talent who just says, God, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow. Um, a wrong view of God. Not seeing God's love, not seeing God's grace, not seeing the, the, the forgiveness, the absolute forgiveness that is available. No matter what anybody's done, God can forgive them. So he brings back the 30 pieces of silver, and then he goes and he commits suicide. Now, um, there are a bunch in these passages. There are a lot of places where it's kind of challenging to work out the history because in Acts it says that Judah, Judas um, fell and into, a, into a, uh, a field and broke open. And the Gospels say he hung himself. So what happened? And we could just put that together. Uh, Judas hung himself, and here's kind of a, a place that would be, like this is the area where they think this happened, and it's kind of a hilly area. Probably hung himself on a tree, and the branch of the rope broke, and then he fell down, and, and his, his, uh, his belly broke open. This is known as the field of blood. 
And so there's, there's tons of things like that in the Gospels, but when we put them together, there's no problem with reconciling these things. And, um, and so G- Judas, he kills himself. You know, you think about um, suicide. Um, Jesus describes um, uh, Judas, and he basically says he's a devil. He says that even though he's one of the 12, Judas is not redeemed. He doesn't know Jesus, even though he's one of the disciples. And just so that you know, suicide is satanic. That is Satan's desire, is to kill people, to destroy people. Um, John chapter 10 uh, tells us this. John chapter 10 tells us the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. No Christian should ever commit suicide. That is not the proper outcome of a believer's life. That is what happens. Um, That is what happens when people think about the world the way Satan teaches them to think about the world, that there is no hope, and Satan's desire is to kill people, whether you know the Lord or you don't know the Lord. Now, just so that you know, suicide is about the 10th or 11th um, cause of death in the United States. Um, Women, by the way, attempt suicide far more often than men. But men kill themselves, they actually kill themselves four times more than women. And so suicide is a a huge issue. Um, It happens most in people my age. Um, That's the highest category of people who kill themselves. And then men who are um, over 85 are the next highest category. For teenagers, they kill themselves less than adults. But for teenagers, it's the third leading cause of death. Um, Suicide. Satan's plan. When he can get into your mind and make you think about life the way he intends for you to think about it, that is the outcome. You know, suicide is a way to escape um, overwhelmed, overwhelming feelings. When you're feeling hopeless, you just feel pain, you feel sadness, and you just want out. A lot of times people end up taking their life Suicide is the result of having no hope for the future. And for Judas, he's looking at his life. And I I wonder how his sin uh, fit into this. I, I wonder how all the money he stole. Think about this. People gave Jesus money to care for the poor, and Judas took that money and stole it. Now, can you imagine the pressure that a person would feel? Let's just say we have an accountant at church, and they start stealing the church's money. How do you stand in front of people and say, I stole God's money? Uh, How do you do that? How do you face that? How do you face the the pressure and what people would think of you? And then Jesus goes and betrays an innocent, or Judas goes and betrays an innocent person. How do you live with that? And so sometimes suicide is just a result of feeling like, man, there is no way out. And I want you to know that suicide when it comes down to it. It's just not having a biblical view about life. There is always hope with God. Um, God is always able to meet any need. He can solve any problem. Like I think about King David. How does he face his sin? He kills somebody and he commits adultery. Like he does those incredible sins. It's supposed to be the death penalty for that. How do you stand in front of Israel and say, as the king, the one who's responsible to judge everybody on God's behalf. Look what I did. I have a good friend who was a pastor. He was an elder in various churches, and he had been maintaining this sinful, hidden, sinful life. And all of a sudden, this guy who knew all this stuff, who was a great Bible teacher, um, that, it came out. And, and his secret sin came to the surface. He was going to be arrested. He was going to go to jail. He was going to lose his family. And so he drove out to a parking lot. He put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. People feel like there is no way out. But with God, there is always a way out. It's one of the things for us as believers to be able to look at this and say, what are the steps that led Judas to take his life instead of repenting and turning to God? It's one of the things we need to think about as parents. You have no idea what your kids will face in their life if they're going to feel overwhelmed, discouraged. Um, we have no idea what we'll face in your, your spouse might face or that you might face or that somebody you sit next to in church, the, the depression, the discouragement, the struggles they may face. This is a question we need to be asking ourselves. 
is what does a person need to know? How do they need to think? How should they view life to overcome that situation? When I was a new electrician, um, the guy that I worked with, his brother had killed himself. And I remember I was a new Christian. I was, I think I was 18 or 19 years old. And I was not super sensitive, but I was a new Christian. I was excited about the Lord. And I, I didn't have this full perspective on life. I was just a kid. But I remember looking at this, this friend of mine who was just telling me the story about his brother taking his life. And I just said, you know, um, I wish I could have talked to him before he killed himself. And he just looked over at me and he said, what would you have said? And I just explained to him how people ready to commit suicide are in the perfect place to become Christians. You, you, uh, you know, dead people, if, you, if you're dead, you have no friends. If you're dead, you have no things. If you're willing to give up your life, why not give up your life and follow Jesus? If you're willing to sacrifice everything, why not sacrifice everything and follow Christ? Be willing to pay any price if your life has no value to you. And uh, the thing I didn't understand is that it's not just an intellectual calculation that causes people to take their life. It's escaping incredible pain. It's not seeing life for what it is. And those were things I didn't understand at that time in my life. But I would just say to you, um, what do you need to be telling your spouse? How do you need to be encouraging your spouse? As your kids are growing up, they're three, four, five. They're not depressed. They're not discouraged. But how do you teach them to communicate with people about what's going on in their life? You teaching your kids to talk to you about things that they're afraid of, discouraged about, having a hard time with? Are you creating an environment in your marriage where if your spouse does something wrong, they can come to you and they can talk to you and they can confess and it's easy because you point them to God's forgiveness and you encourage them? Are we teaching each other and the people close to us to approach life that in the day that that moment comes, uh, they have the best opportunity to see life the way God truly would have them see it. That's what God intends for us in the body of Christ. And Judas certainly didn't do that. He didn't have the resources that are provided in Christ. Here's a third thing that we see here is that Jesus was declared innocent by the actions of the chief priests. Look at verse 26. It says this, verse 6, but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful for them to be put into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver and the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The chief priests can't take back the money that they gave Judas and put it in the temple because it was the price of blood. They paid Judas in order to kill Jesus. That is an admission of their own guilt. And this is how blind the Pharisees are. They'll take money out of the temple and pay a ransom to kill somebody who's innocent. Like, they'll use God's money for that, but then when they get it back, it's like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not, we're not putting that back in. That's evil money. Really? You're evil. You're who made that evil. And so their actions prove that Jesus is innocent. You know, it's interesting. Judas, he's overwhelmed, and he comes to these chief priests, and he wants to give back the money. <laughs> Do they shepherd him? Do they care for him? He's feeling overwhelmed because he betrayed Jesus. And how do these chief priests and religious leaders respond? They just go, what is that to us? We don't care about you. Get out of here. See, these are false spiritual leaders who don't care for people. They are not interested in people's well-being. All they care about is using people and manipulating people and getting what they want. Now, let's just take a step back. Do we see any of that in Christianity? You ever grab the newspaper, opened it up, or read a headline and go, man, how could a pastor do that? What a, what a fake individual. How did that happen? 
You know, that is always what happens when people are religious, when they don't take care of what's going on in their heart. Not everybody who commits a great sin is not a believer. Um, We're going to see in this passage that there are faithful people who do that. We saw Peter, right? He betrayed Jesus. Sometimes faithful people fall apart. But I will tell you this, never is a person spiritually faithful, honoring the Lord in their life, and then they commit terrible sins like that. That never happens. There is never a day that a pastor is spiritually faithful, honoring the Lord, and then goes and has an affair. That has never happened. Those big sins are always a reflection of small compromises that have been kept secret. And that's our job in the body of Christ is to know people, to know how to recognize those, to see those things, and to get involved and to help and to encourage and and to point to forgiveness. But a lot of times we just close our eyes. We have conflict over all kinds of things that are silly and don't matter. And we ignore the significant conversations that we need to be having with people. The chief priests, they convinced themselves that they were faithful and righteous while all the time they were committing terrible sin. You know, Jesus was also declared innocent by Pilate. Let's read this next section in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? (laughs) Look at verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. You know, Jesus was innocent before Pilate, and we're going to see Pilate um, declare Jesus innocent over and over and over. When you compare the Gospels, Pilate more than five times declares Jesus innocent, and he's seeking to release him. This whole thing with Barabbas, we get more details in the other Gospels, but Jesus is just thinking, okay, we know that the Pharisees want to kill Jesus because they, they're full of envy. Do you guys remember James chapter 3, verse 13? Remember that passage? If any of you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't, be, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not that wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You ever think about that? You know, that happens in churches and families and stuff like that too, right? Like you got five people that go do some work on some project, and, and then uh, everybody goes, oh, man, that one person, they did such a good job. And then everybody else says, why didn't anybody notice me? Why did nobody thank me? can happen with pastors where somebody will say, oh, I just love this pastor's teaching and how it encourages me. And then the other pastor's like, well, what are you saying? I'm not, I'm not that good. Like, why are you complimenting that person? What about me? Anytime any of us feels that way, that is demonic. That is the same thing that Satan used to manipulate the religious Pharisees, and he, re- he manipulates Christians today in the same way. But Pilate declares Jesus innocent multiple times. And one of the things with Barabbas is Pilate is thinking, okay, these these Jewish people, they're they're Jewish leaders, they're full of envy, but they're afraid of the crowds. At least the crowds like Jesus. And so he's like, hey, let's do Barabbas. This is going to be my way to get Jesus off the hook. Let's let them choose between this murderer, this violent criminal, this insurrectionist, which, by the way, the Romans should have been upset about, Um, that he was an insurrectionist. People should have been afraid of Barabbas. He murdered people. He he was a robber. He stole from people. Now think about that. Um, They're going to release a bunch of violent criminals from jail, and they say, who do you want living in your neighborhood, Barabbas 
or Jesus. Now let's think about this. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is for the next point. So Pilate's trying to free Jesus. That's why he brings up Barabbas. And um, it's interesting what we see happen here. When you look at all the times that Pilate says Jesus is innocent, Pilate also sends Jesus to Herod, who also declares Jesus innocent and sends him back. And so Jesus is innocent, declared by Pilate. Now, what's the motivation? Why Why was Pilate unwilling to take a stand for Jesus? This is so ironic. So Pilate had had a bunch of trouble with the Jews. He did some things that were very offensive to them. He, he marched Roman soldiers in, and they had symbols, idolat, you know, idolatrous symbols on their shields, and, and people got really upset, and there were multiple riots, and Pilate was having trouble um, controlling the, the Jewish nation, and he was afraid that the emperor would say, this guy's got too many problems, let's get rid of him, let's replace him with someone else. And so Pilate's thinking, and that's what the Jews threaten Pilate with later. They say, if you release Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar. And he sees this mob, he sees things are getting out of control, and he's like, all right, he washes his hands. and says, I got nothing to do with this. You go kill an innocent person. I'm not going to be responsible for it. Why? Because he was afraid he would lose his position. And so he was willing. He's like, hey, I want to save Jesus, but I'm not willing to sacrifice myself for it. You want to know the what is so ironic about this, after this whole thing happens, you want to know what happens? Pilate is dethroned. He's thrown out of his position, and Pilate goes and kills himself. Eusebius tells us that. The very thing that Pilate was afraid of happened to him. Now, let's think back. What do we know from the Bible? Um, You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they're told, bow down and worship this idol or I'm throwing you into a furnace. That was not maybe I'll die. That was I'm definitely going to die. And do you want to know what they didn't do? They didn't say, let me calculate the best outcome for myself. They said, no, I want to calculate not what will bring me the best outcome, but what is right. This is the right thing. That is what I'll do. And they actually say to to, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and I don't care if it costs my life. And what happens to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Do they die? No. What about Daniel? You going to pray? Be thrown into a lion's den? He's definitely going to die. But what does he do? He doesn't say, okay, how can I keep myself alive? Let me close my windows. He says, no, in, in this, this whole scheme, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to figure out what is the right thing to do. What honors God? That is what I will do. And then he gets thrown into a lion's den, and does he die? No. How often do we compromise because we are trying to calculate what will bring the best outcome for us instead of thinking about what is the right thing to do? I cannot tell you how many people I've seen in life, they make sinful decisions that are destructive to their life, that set a bad example for their kids, that are destructive for their kids, harmful to their whole family, And you ask them, why'd you do that? I mean, the Bible right here says that's wrong. Why'd you do it? And the response is, well, I'd be miserable if I didn't. This is my only path to happiness. I mean, could God really want me to obey and do these things and and miss out on this joy from sinning? Yeah, actually, God does want you to do the right thing. And ultimately, it is actually always what is best. There is one question we ask ourselves in every situation, what is is right. Not what is my perception of what will make me happiest. And that's where Pilate went wrong. And you know, it's so funny, people look at Pilate and they insult him. You're this powerful man who executes an innocent person. But if we take a step back, we go, oh wow, I guess I'm just like Pilate. How can I learn from that the next time I'm facing what seems to be incredible pressure? How can I just say, no, God, what's the right thing to do here? That's what I'm going to do. It seems impossible. It seems unthinkable, but I will do what's right. See, that's what God wants from believers. That's what went wrong with Pilate. This is the fifth thing, and this this shocks and amazes me. 
this fifth point. It's Matthew 27, 20 to 26. Jesus is condemned by a manipulated mob. This is an amazing consideration. It's unthinkable. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want for me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And and Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Think about this crowd. Let's go back, that question I got ahead of myself on. Um, You can have a violent criminal, child molester, somebody who's murdered people, somebody who robs people, and he can be released to be your next door neighbor. Or you can have Jesus, who teaches with authority, who is gracious and loving and merciful, who heals people that are sick, who when all the religious leaders bring some lady caught in adultery and want her to be stoned, Jesus defends her. He didn't sit around and go, how can I maintain popularity? Uh, How can I keep all these people from being against me? Jesus is gracious to her. The Samaritans, think about the Samaritans, the way they were rejected. And Jesus shows up and he shows love to the Samaritans. He heals the Gentiles. He heals the Romans. Jesus, loving, gracious man who speaks the words of God. And he has blessed and encouraged and helped all these people. Like they they came to Jerusalem to see Jesus. They heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they are going to scream, crucify him and release Barabbas. Have you thought about that? How appalling that is. Why'd they do that? It's because they listened to their religious leaders. The Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. They surrounded themselves with people with a bad attitude. They took people who outside looked good and inside were corrupt. And they said, I will respect and follow you. Do you remember Matthew 23? Where Jesus addresses the Pharisees and then he addresses the crowd. And he says, these are hypocrites. They ignore God's word. They, they change, they, they dishonor God for the sake of their traditions. They strain out gnats, not entering uh, the Roman house to defile themselves. And they swallow camels, killing innocent people like Jesus. They've completely missed it. Don't follow them. They're going to hell. They're going to hell, and everybody who follows them will be twice as much a son of hell. Jesus said this to the Pharisees' face. Did he hide? Did he gather up a bunch of people and say, I'm really concerned about the religious leaders over there. Let's pray for them because there's these things they're not doing right. I have a better way. I'm smarter than them. Is that what Jesus did? No, he showed up in public without hiding anything, you know, out in the open versus behind closed doors. And he said, you guys are hypocrites. And then he looks at the crowd in front of the Pharisees and says, don't follow them. And then what does a crowd do? They show up on this day of Jesus' crucifixion and they follow these hypocritical leaders who have laid burdens on them, who have not cared about them, who have abused them and used them. And they say, oh, you know, it's kind of easier and more convenient. I'm going to follow the false religious leaders instead of taking a stand for what is right. And that whole crowd chants, to crucify Jesus. Um, That's not an accident, and they are all responsible for doing that, for betraying the one who loved them 
and who died for them. Amazing that that happens. Um, verse, or the sixth thing is that he was unjustly abused by those whom he came to save. Think about this. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they had gathered the whole ba- um, a battalion before him and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took a reed and struck him on the head And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his own clothes, and led him away to be crucified. Um, Unbelievable that the soldiers treat Jesus this way. Like, think about that. They struck God. They spit in the face of God. Like, that is unthinkable. Just this frenzy this mob, the way everybody treated Jesus. And this is the thing that is so encouraging in that is to see Jesus' heart and Jesus' attitude toward these people. I want to show you just two verses. Jesus says this when he's on the cross about these people who did this to him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Matthew 20, 28, why did this happen this way? Because God had a purpose in it. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, people, when they feel guilty and convicted, they respond in one or two ways. They respond like Judas and like the people who killed Stephen. Or they respond like Peter and like all the people in Acts chapter 2. See, Peter and Stephen preach a similar sermon where um, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the the Israel nation and he said, you killed an innocent man. He blames them. You killed an innocent man. And it says they were cut to the quick. They were convicted in their heart. And they said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent. And they repent and they believe He says, believe and be baptized. Put your faith in Jesus, and they do. And the Bible tells us that that 3,000 people get saved that day. In Acts chapter 4, 5,000 men, a crowd. They just counted the men because it was so many. 5,000, so probably another 10,000 people get saved because when they hear what happened and they hear about who Jesus is and when they feel convicted and guilty, they put their faith in Jesus. And then two chapters later, uh, Stephen preaches he preaches these religious leaders. By the way, the Apostle Paul's listening to that sermon. And, and Stephen says the same thing. You're all wicked and you killed Jesus, the Holy One. And what do they do? They pick up stones and kill Stephen. See, it's not the message that determines the response. It's the condition of a person's heart. And so that's the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas could have repented. God would have forgiven him. But he didn't. It was his heart. He was rebellious. He was hard-hearted. And that's the choice that every one of us has. Are we going to solve our problems on our own? Are we going to see Jesus for who he is, the innocent son of God, killed for our salvation? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to repent knowing that God loves us, that he'll forgive us, that he'll put our life back together? And that's for the body of Christ. Is that how we treat each other? When we see somebody struggling, do we pray for them? Do we love them or are we irritated by them? Do we embody Jesus' attitude toward our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are we satanically manipulated? Just like the Pharisees, just like Judas, just like the crowds, just like the Romans. See, we all have a choice about how we'll approach life. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper I want to read Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. And it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
And I love verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. If you take this cup, the, 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 the juice represents the blood of Jesus that he was dot, that he was killed for us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you just open up the bottom of the cup and take the bread and let's, let's eat this remembering that j- this represents the body of Jesus which is for us. Let's eat. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. There are so many things that are wrong in our lives. We've all sinned, every one of us. Lord, we all need you. And God, I pray that anytime anybody is struggling, Lord, that that they would turn to you, that they would never feel hopeless. Lord, as, as, as a church family, help us to lay a foundation of love and grace and kindness and pointing people toward forgiveness and encouragement. And that, Lord, we would live out the truth of what it means to have a relationship with you. God, I just ask that you would help each of us to be aware of satanic manipulation, that we would never fall prey to it, that we would live our lives knowing that our salvation is not based on what our works, that we don't do the right thing to try to get into heaven, but, Lord, that we would love you and that we would trust you to the point that we would never calculate outcomes. We would only consider what is right. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us. Thank you for the death of Jesus, Lord, for what you did for us in your name. Amen.